Father, pour out your spirit upon us anew and afresh this morning to give us ears to hear your word so that your truth and your holy word might take root in our hearts and produce life in us and fruit for your kingdom so that you might be praised and your glory might spread throughout all the world. We commend ourselves to your care this morning. Amen. Amen. may be seated. Well, good morning. Go ahead and take out a Bible, if you would, and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. You'll find some there in the pew Bibles in front of you. I'm sure that nagging device in your pocket has one available, too. Uh, you can also turn there. And thank you, Cornell, for reading that uh, lengthy passage for us from 1 Peter chapter 5. Since the second week of Easter, we've been listening to the voice of God in this epistle, this first epistle of St. Peter that he wrote to the churches that were at that point in modern day, what is now modern day Turkey. And now this morning, we've come to the end of that letter and to the end of our series that we've been looking at since just right after Easter. And throughout this letter, Peter has sought to teach and to instill within us God's principle of true grace, in which we are to stand amid the cultural and social pressures that may arise around us for our love and loyalty to King Jesus. So we heard this morning there in chapter 5, verse 12. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What then is this principle of God's true grace? Here it is, according to Peter, that we've been looking at. We've encountered it multiple times throughout the letter. Here's that principle of true grace. Our future inheritance as God's children arrives by way of present sufferings. Our future inheritance as God's children arrives by way of present sufferings. Exaltation follows humiliation. Eternal glory comes after earthly sufferings. This principle and way of God's true grace has been pioneered for us by Jesus. Peter consistently looks back to Jesus. We, last week we, we referenced Philippians 2. Paul goes back to Jesus to see this principle at work. And Peter calls us to follow Jesus with the confidence that what is true of him will be true of us. This is our baptismal confidence. Because in and through the waters of baptism, through faith and repentance, we have been united to both Jesus' suffering and to his eventual glory, to eternal glory, to exaltation. And so, in, if in Jesus' life, resurrection, exaltation, and eternal glory come after earthly humiliation and suffering, then we have every reason to be confident. Every reason to be confident that our present humiliation and suffering, whenever that may come and whatever form that may come, will likewise be eclipsed and followed by exaltation and glory that we will share with Jesus when he returns to establish God's kingdom in full. That's good news. That's the good news of the gospel. That we're united to Jesus. That our lives do not end in death. They do not end marked by sin. But they end marked by life and glory shared with Jesus in the Father's kingdom. The remaining question for us, and this is the one that Peter answers here in the last chapter of his letter, is then how do we stand firm? How do we stand firm in this true grace of God? And he gives us really three things, three action points. First, he says, humbly submit to God. It's verses 1 through 7. 
humbly submit to God. Second, he says, firmly resist the devil, verses 8 through 9. And then finally, in verses 10 through 11, he says, adore God and worship. Submit to God, resist the devil, worship God. So let's begin there in verses 1 through 7. Humbly submit to God. How does the church do this? How does the church humbly submit to God? Well, first, the church's humble submission to God begins with its priests. And priest is a funny word for us. It's just an English word that means presbyter, elder. So what does it mean for the church to submit to God? It begins first with her priest, humbly submitting our lives to the chief shepherd. Look there at verses 1 through 4 again. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. There's the true grace of God, the principle of the true grace of God. Partaker of the sufferings, but also partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Then he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, that's not under duty, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So then, the way that we, referring to priest, pastors, the way that we shepherd the flock of Christ, exercising spiritual oversight that's been ordained by God, must be one marked by a profound and total submission to Jesus, the chief shepherd. Our lives must be marked by that total submission to him. And this priestly submission to Jesus must arise from what Peter says is a willing, eager, and humble heart. Not one that's motivated by mere duty alone, or greed, or desire to dominate others. And I think we understand the issue with a priest who is motivated by greed, or a desire to dominate others, why that might be wrong. Why, that might not lead to health. But we might be confused about why he says not out of just mere duty. Isn't it good? Isn't duty good? Well, duty itself is not wrong, but duty alone leads to half-hearted service. Duty alone leads to half-hearted service. If you're in a marriage and your spouse only loves you because of a sense of duty to maintain their marriage vows, you know that that's insufficient. It's not wrong. It's a good thing. That duty is good, but it's insufficient. Love. Love for God and for others. We looked at that two weeks ago. Love is needed alongside of duty. This love enlivens and animates duty. Mere duty is cold and sterile, but duty plus love is warm and life-giving. It's strong. It holds together. So love for God and others transforms priestly duty into ready and eager willingness to lead as a shepherd. Gently and at times even firmly with rod and staff, just like the chief shepherd, guiding but never prodding the flock to the green pastures and still waters of God's grace. And so for Father David and myself and Father Kelly and Ben and Shane here at Christ Church, there's a lot to live up to here. There's a lot to live up to here. And it begins with us. According to Peter, our lives must be submitted totally to Jesus. 
How can we expect the flock of God to be submitted when the shepherds that he has placed over her is not? This love, this priestly love, also safeguards against greed and domination because it is first oriented to God as he is revealed in Jesus, the chief shepherd. And it's secondarily oriented toward the flock in self-sacrificial service in the way of Jesus. So that love for God, remember we talked about that being obeying his will and that love for others in the way of Jesus of giving ourselves away is the thing that guards us as priests, Lord willing, by his grace, from falling into those mere duty alone or greed or seeking to dominate others. So for Peter, in order for the church to stand firm, her priests must be totally submitted in humility to Jesus as examples to God's flock. But you're not off the hook. It's not just for us alone. Peter moves on. That second point there, the church humbly submits to God by each member clothing him or herself in humility to one another as well. Listen to verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Peter begins by calling those who are younger to submit to the priests in the church. There is some uncertainty of who Peter has in mind here exactly when he speaks of the younger person, because this word here for younger doesn't necessarily or always mean one lesser in age. Regardless of the exact referent, though, the message of humble submission to those responsible for overseeing the church is clear. Next, Peter moves on to address everyone in the church, whether a bishop, a priest, a deacon, or a layperson, older, young, man, or woman, when he calls for all to show humility to one another. And of course, the best way that Peter was familiar with as well to show humility was Jesus' own example. I think the one that comes to mind is him washing his disciples' feet. Just as he humbly served his disciples, so to each member of the church, whatever his or her station in life, status in life, must show humble service toward each of the other members, no matter what their status or station is in this life. This is the beauty of Maundy Thursday during Holy Week for us, where we come together and we wash each other's feet. It's an act of humble service. Paul likewise gives voice to this humility in Philippians 2 and verses 2 through 5. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others also. Have this mind. This is that that mind of humility, that humble way of thinking and acting in the world. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus' humble and sacrificial service is the model of humility we are to show to each person in this church and every church, regardless of who we think we are or whom we think they, they them to be. It doesn't matter. Humble service. I spent... Uh, a summer in Uganda for a college internship, and I was interning at a ministry there, and the leader, Thomas Subunde, was a Kenyan missionary to Uganda, and he was my uh, immediate boss, and it was his practice that whenever he hired anyone 
to work for him, whether it was in his ministry or in the school that he ran, he always invited them to wash toilets. It's one of the first things he did. He wanted to see. It didn't matter if it was the principal. He was hiring a new principal. He always asked everyone to wash toilets. He wanted to see, he wanted to see if there was a spirit of humility, if they were clothed in humility, if they were willing to serve in, so, in such a demeaning, we would say, a demeaning way, washing toilets. No matter who you are, no service is below you. No service is below you. And no one in this church is unworthy of your service. No one is unworthy of your service. Flock of God, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Lastly, Peter, we're still talking about being submitted to the church, humbly submitted to God. Lastly, the church humbly submits to God when its members entrust their lives totally, totally to the mighty hand of God. Listen to verses 6 and 7 again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humble yourselves, become low, that he may exalt you. Have you seen the, the principle of true grace here? Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In the Old Testament, that phrase, the mighty hand of God, generally refers to God's power to intervene in history on behalf of his people. God's hand is his protective power, yet this does not mean that God intervenes when or in the ways that we desire him to do so in our lives or in the lives of those we love. The good shepherd has the power to protect in his rod. We hear that from Psalm 23, but yet he also leads us through the dark and deathly valley. He would put us in places that threaten our lives. So humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God refers to a complete and total entrusting of our lives to him and his care for us, recognizing that he can and will lead us home. That he can and he will lead us home, even if that path is at times dark and painful. That's why he says, so that at the proper time, at the proper time, one that he determines, you may be exalted. Again, this is just like Psalm 23. But the good shepherd leads us through that dark and deathly valley, but he doesn't leave us there. He always brings us through to a table that he prepares for us in the face of our enemies. But then even beyond that, his mercy follows us all the days of our lives until we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He follows us through, leads us through those valleys till we come home again to rest secure in his loving embrace. So often it's that timing, though. At the proper time, he will exalt you. It's the timing of God's deliverance from suffering or trial that makes it difficult to entrust ourselves to God. In those moments of suffering or pain, trial or temptation, we can all too easily fall back onto our own power, our own self-reliance in, in an attempt to deliver ourselves from that moment or from that season of difficulty. And this is why Peter calls us to express our humble submission to God in prayer. That's what he says, casting all your anxieties, all your fears, all your concerns, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Because the true grace of God is an eternal truth in our world. It's, 
It's what Peter says you will confront in this life, that you will go through sufferings, but he will exalt you. But the fact that you go through sufferings is the place where you are tried and tested. And the only way we endure that trial or testing in our lives is by throwing ourselves totally and completely onto God, casting all our anxieties on him. Blessed Franz Jägerstatter, a martyr, an Austrian farmer, who was killed by the Nazis for not fighting for Hitler's army during the Second World War. He gives an exa- a wonderful example of this entrusting of one's life to God when he writes to his wife from prison. He says, You know, dear wife, that I do not engage in this struggle in order to make my life wonderful. As long as God's grace does not abandon me, so trust in God there, and I do not lose my faith, nothing can be unfortunate. Nothing can be unfortunate. If our hearts are often sad, nevertheless we know indeed that our sadness will be changed to joy. You see, a mark of humble submission to God, one that willingly entrusts all of life to him, and those words are an expression of a total commitment a total entrusting one's life to him, a mark of that humble submission is the confident hope of future joy and glory, a, a robust grasping a hold of that true principle of God's grace, that he does not leave us in our sin, he does not leave us in death, he does not leave us in pain or suffering. You will not stand firm in the true grace of God when and if pressure comes to give up your love and loyalty to Jesus, unless you entrust your life, your happiness, your health, your finances, your family, your career, your children's future, completely and totally to God. That's what Peter calls us to. And you can only entrust your life to him in this way when you recognize that fundamental reality that he cares for you. That he is concerned about you. That's G- Jesus tells us this in his Good Shepherd dialogue in John 10. That the, that the shepherd, he's, he's different than hired servants. Hired servants run when wolves come. The good shepherd doesn't because he's concerned for you. Yet, it's at this point that the devil so often strikes at us tempting us to turn from God, believing falsely that he does not care for us. And this leads us to Peter's second aspect of standing firm in the true grace of God. So how do we stand firm in the true grace of God? We, we humbly submit ourselves to God, and then we firmly resist the devil. Listen there to verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter's instruction here to be watchful comes from his own painful failure. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus exhorted Peter along with James and John three times to watch. Watch with me. Watch with me. To watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, Jesus said. And yet, Peter failed to watch. Being tempted three times and three times 
giving in and denying Jesus when things went south, when suffering came. So Peter knows that when you face pressure or suffering for your love and loyalty to Jesus, the devil at that moment stalks you as a lion stalks its prey with the desire to devour you. That is to bring about total destruction in your life. That's what that word to devour means. And for us as Christians, that total destruction looks like becoming apostate, about renouncing Jesus as king and following him, committing our lives to him as Lord, whether in thought, word, or deed. This is why Peter is called to, humble, to humbly entrust our lives to God who cares for us is so important. Because one of the chief ways that the devil works is through deception. Deceiving us that God really isn't very caring about us when we go through moments of suffering or trial. This is what he did in the Garden of Eden with Eve. God knows you won't die. He knows you won't die if you eat of the fruit. He's holding it back from you. Eat. Then you will see and know. Then you will be like God. Likewise, when we suffer, the devil is quick to tempt us. God doesn't really care for you. If he did, he wouldn't allow this suffering to happen. You've given your whole life to him, and this is how he repays you? With suffering? Just be rid of Jesus and all this foolishness, and suffering will go away. C.S. Lewis captures so well the contrast between the God who cares for you and the devil who desires to devour you in his screw tape letters when the demon screw tape writes. Now, it may surprise you to learn that in God's efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the troughs, the valleys, even more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through the longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. The reason is this. To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is to absorb is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy, referring to God, demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its minuscule scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. It's the love of God. We want cattle, the demon speaking, who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. So with Peter, we can say, resist the devil. As your priest... I speak to all of us, myself included. Resist the devil. Firm in your faith, faith in Christ, who loves you, who gave himself for you, so that you might become sons and daughters of God and co-heirs of the glory that will come 
when that resurrection reality of Jesus flows throughout all the world. Don't be deceived. Stand firm in the true grace of God. So finally now, we come to that last bit of standing firm. How do we stand, in the, stand firm in the true grace of God? We humbly submit to God. We firmly resist the devil. And finally, we adoringly worship God. Listen to verses 10 through 11 one last time. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore. Himself, not some angel, but himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion, the rule, the the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the end of the story. The true grace of God even structures Peter's final appeal to us. God's true grace wins. He will right all wrongs. He will mend all wounded hearts He will wipe away every tear. He will confirm all those who love him as his own children. You are mine. He will strengthen you with his own life. And he will set your feet firmly within his kingdom, never to be moved or shaken. That's the end of your story. That's the end of our story as the children of God. That's your inheritance. That Peter speaks about in chapter 1. It's your birthright as the children of God who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter's final call here is to stand firm in this true grace now. Unmovable, unshakable. And the most appropriate way to express our resolve is through humble and yet bold worship. It ends and begins in worship for Peter, in Jesus. For what else is there for us to do? When we see God revealed in Jesus, for in Jesus we see clearly God's care for us, we see his shepherding love, his love that would bend his knees to wash our feet. In Jesus, God gets off his donkey after others have passed us by. He gets on his knees to cleanse our sin-caused wounds with his water of life. He applies the healing balm of his mercy and grace. He feeds us with heavenly bread and wine to strengthen our weary souls. He brings us to the end of filled hospital, really, to be cared for by others whom he has rescued as we wait his return to bring us into his own kingdom to experience the fullness of life forevermore, what else is there to do other than worship the God who cares for us? The God who condescends to save us and to secure for us life everlasting. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.